If you haven't listened to the first episode of An Absurd Result, stop and go back. We'll still be here. And one more note. This series contains details about a sexual assault and also adult language. Previously on our show... I didn't know my mom was in my brother's room, so I ran all the way downstairs to my dad. He saw I was panicking, so he's like, I will search the house. And she said that there had been a man in her room. And my first thought was she had a bad dream. And she yelled at me, it was not a dream. I think it changed me, but in a way that is so specifically eight years old, you know. The uh, police were, they were good with her. They were as gentle as they could be, but it's tough, you know, to put a kid through that. A few days after Linda Glantz goes to the police station and sits with a sketch artist to describe the man who raped her, Jim Brobgard walks out his front door. He's about to hop in a car with some friends. Yeah, we were going to go to a concert, I think, and then we were surrounded by police. Where was that? Right in front of the house. So what happened? I walked out of the house, got in the car, and then they swarmed us. They were, like, watching the house, I guess. So then your buddies leave, and you go with them? Yeah, then I go to jail. Maybe you missed that last part. Jim Bromgar says a lot of interesting things, but he also kind of mumbles. He said, yeah, and I go to jail. Jim was Jimmy then, 18 years old and close to graduating high school when he got in that cop car. It was a Wednesday afternoon around 2 p.m. And this was a moment, one that changed a bunch of lives forever. My name's Jewel Banville. I'm a journalist in Montana. And this is episode two of An Absurd Result, The Arrest. In episode one, you met Linda Glantz, who was eight years old in 1987 when someone broke into her family's home and assaulted her. The rapist climbed in through a bathroom window and left without getting caught. It was a shocking crime then. It still is a parent's worst nightmare. From the moment a police sketch artist sat down with her daughter, Linda's mom, Katie O'Sullivan, knew the cops had identified a person of interest and she knew his name. And she came up with a sketch. And as the sketch artist was finishing it, a policeman or a detective walked by and he said, I know that guy. Looks like Jim Bromgard. And it did. (laughs) But another mom, Jimmy's mom, Diana Merrill, she doesn't get that at all. I don't know how anybody could look at that sketch and say that's Jimmy. I actually don't. You've seen the sketch, I'm sure. Diana was reeling. Her son had been in trouble before, sure. But nothing like this. Nothing like raping a little girl. But the cops were lining things up, and they were also filling in Linda's family on Jimmy's history. Here's Linda's mom. You know, you just pop right up. That's Jimmy Bromgard. Um, so he had been... He hadn't been a uh, choir boy, <laughs> exactly. At first, cops just asked Jimmy a few timeline questions. It turns out Jimmy didn't know where he was around 4 a.m. on March 20th. He said he could have been out drinking with his buddies, or maybe he was home sleeping. Lack of an alibi, along with a sketch, that was enough to put him in a lineup. So then, later on, uh, either, I don't know, a day or two, maybe the same day, I can't remember, but I took Linda up to the county jail for a lineup and I guess there were probably five guys that walked out and she had a an obvious reaction to one of them and she 
identified Bromgard as the person that she thought had assaulted her. When they went to get Jimmy to line up, they knew where to find him. He was in the county jail on an unrelated charge. This happened after the initial interview about the rape. He was back in school at Billings Senior High. But he got in a fight there, and cops came to get him again. I believe it was when I went to jail for assault, um, for being up at kid's school. Um, they asked me if I wanted to be part of a lineup, and they told me what it was about, about the girl that got raped. What do you remember about that lineup? Um, I used to actually have the VHS copy of it, but somebody played it in their VCR, chewed it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that uh, I had like a green shirt on, everybody else had blue shirts. So I was, they dressed me on and I had a different color shirt on. Um, I remember a couple of the people that were in the lineup were guards from the jail. Jim might have lost his copy of that tape, but a tiny part of it shows up in a documentary that ran on Court TV in 2006. It's used here with permission from the filmmaker. Read what is written on the paper, please. You better shut up or else I'll kill you. The victim watches as the six men step forward. Read what is written on the paper. You shut up or else I'll kill you. When Bromgard speaks, she becomes frightened. The detective asks if she sees her attacker in the lineup. She says number five, Jimmy Ray Bromgard. She reacted when he... Although Linda's mom is the one standing next to her, she reacts to these men behind the glass. Her dad, Mark Dakarski, was also learning about this person of interest. I want to ask you about the first time you heard the name or knew that the police were looking at Jim Bromgard. Um... That would only be around the time where Linda picked him out of the lineup. And then we followed it very closely after that. Uh, I was aghast that this was the guy who did it and he was still, you know, free to walk around and everything. During this time, the police needed a few more key items to piece it all together. So they kept close tabs on Jimmy and let him know it'd be better for him to cooperate. And then they started asking for hair samples and things like that after that. The hair samples Jimmy turned over went to the director of the Montana Crime Lab at the time, Arnold Melnikoff. Melnikoff had Jimmy's head hair and pubic hair, along with a couple of hairs found in Linda's bedroom. And he got some interesting results when he compared them under his microscope. After he gave those results to the cops, it didn't take them long to arrive at that moment in front of Jimmy's house. He faced three counts of felony rape of a minor. Jimmy's mom has some thoughts about the day they arrested her son. I was not there. My husband was not there. The kids were the only ones home. They came in, went upstairs, went into Jimmy's room, and completely destroyed his room. They pulled the light socket out of the... up, up th- looking for a pair of keys that were supposed to... whoever broke into the house was supposed to have taken. And, of course, they pulled the light socket right out, just broke it, never bothered to repair it, and just dis- completely destroyed his room. So there, was, there were no adults home when they came to do this. No adults home at all. Her husband, Jim's stepdad, called her at work to tell her what happened. I couldn't believe it. Um, Jimmy had just recently gotten out of Pine Hills, and I think the bond was 200 and some dollars, and I borrowed money from a co-worker that she took out of her savings, and I gave it back to her and said, put this back in your savings. <laughs> you know, I wanted to make sure it got back there. 
But um, he was out. He was. I don't think he was out for a week before this happened. You know, and I just, I was just kind of couldn't believe what happened. Just couldn't believe it. The trial was that same year, November 1987. Did you go to the trial? I did. I was there every day. What was that like? Well, you know, you would sit and listen to people that you knew were lying. Jimmy's mom listened and came to her own conclusions, especially about a certain checkbook. It belonged to Linda's mom, and it was in her purse, the same purse stolen the morning of the assault. The checkbook turned up on Alderson Street, where Jimmy lived with his mom and stepdad. One officer said that they found the checkbook that had been stolen from the house. They found it, oh, maybe maybe half a block from where we live, right, right against the curb. And so, you know, they associated with that with Jimmy because, I mean, it had to be him. He was, it was right close to where he lived. And so when they questioned this officer, um, he said that he saw someone standing in the vicinity of 28 Alderson. They asked him to identify the person. He said he could not identify the person, but he saw someone standing there. It could have been anybody. Jimmy testified on his own behalf, proclaiming innocence, but not just that. He told the jury that whoever did this crime deserved to go to jail or even get the death penalty. I think it's sick, that's what he said on the stand. The jury also heard from Linda, that was on the first full day. That came as kind of a surprise to her. Um, I woke up that morning ready to go to school, got on what I'd laid out the night before to go to school in, and literally right as the kids were walking out the door, my dad grabbed me and said, trials today. And so I knew we were preparing for it, but I think the advice everybody had given him was just don't tell her. Just walk her in in the morning. And I, I, I didn't hang out in the courtroom. I walked in, I testified, I walked out. And that was it. The jury heard from her parents, too. They heard from the detectives who interviewed Linda and the doctor who examined her. On the last full day of the trial, Arnold Melnikoff testified about the likelihood the hairs in Linda's bedroom matched Jimmy Bromgard. Linda's parents sat through it all. Her dad says it was a quick button-up trial that brought them right back to the horror that entered their lives. And I'm thinking he is the guy that did this horrible thing, and uh, I want him put away. What's amazing to me is that he got in the house, did what he did, um, and got out of the house. He left no footprints whatsoever behind. The police had absolutely no evidence to go on. Uh, for a drunk man to commit a crime like that and leave the scene so clean, to me, is just astounding. I, I mean, there had to be a lot of planning going into it beforehand. Yeah. Think about that, too. Yeah. Yeah, and that creeps me out. On the fourth day, the jury went into a room, and the decision was pretty quick. They deliberated for a little more than two hours and came out with a unanimous verdict. Find the defendant, Jimmy Ray Bromberg. Guilty. When they announced the verdict, do you remember that? Uh-huh. What do you remember about it? Um, I just, I can quickly blink. I just didn't know what to think. It's like, but I had no thoughts at all. It's just shock. Mark remembers that differently. He says Jimmy did have a pretty memorable reaction. I just know when the 
jury came through with the guilty verdict, he yelled out, XXX jury. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I think he said, God damn fucking jury. After the verdict, Jimmy went back to jail. At the sentencing hearing the following month, the lead prosecutor told the judge Jimmy's offense was one of the most grievous crimes ever committed in Yellowstone County. Linda's dad had written a letter to the judge. In it, he said, give him the maximum sentence. And then he added, for us, the parents, Jimmy's visit still lingers. Uh, so at sentencing, after everybody sat down, Judge Toddbow yelled out that there would be no new evidence. We don't need no evidence. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that this man is guilty. The judge gave Jimmy 40 years on each of three counts to be served concurrently. Linda's mom, Katie, says it was one type of ending. Because it was, um, you know, returned to a little bit of normalcy or security once he was convicted for me and for Linda and for the rest of the family. So, uh, and, and I sat through the trial, too, and I really believed he was guilty. And again, part of it's probably because as a mother, you just wanted somebody to, uh, you wanted answers, you know. It's not my intention to mislead you for the duration here. What happened to Jim Bromgard is a story some people know, including everyone I talked to for this series. Because the truth is, he didn't do it. Jimmy Ray Bromgard did not rape Linda Tokarski Glantz. After serving nearly 15 years, he was exonerated and walked out a free man. And the reasons he went to prison for this, how it all lined up against him, those will become clear as we dig in. Like Linda, Jim Bromgard grew up in Billings and still lives in Montana. But it's a good seven or eight hour drive from Billings to where he is now, in a single wide on a nice chunk of land in the Flathead Valley. He's married and has two kids. His wife, Kat, is at work, and the kids are at school when I knock on his door. You want me to come in? Yeah. Oh, okay. Hey, Ash. Hey, 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 hey. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you, Jimmy? Good, He's good. taping up a Harry Potter puzzle his son, Miles, yeah, recently finished. Oh, can I see it? Yeah. I love puzzles. We're going to put, uh, put it on a piece of wood for him. Oh, okay, so it's on the bottom, right? Yeah, that's the back of him taping it up. So you oh, Harry it. Potter in the car. Yeah, it's 3D. Have you um, watched all the movies? Oh, yeah. Harry Potter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're good. We like them. Yeah, we were just, I'm on the second round in the books with my second kid. Nice. And we just passed that scene. Nice. And they end up in the tree. Yep. And the thing wants them. Wampin tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I like that one. Wow. We sit down at his kitchen table while he takes a break between cigarettes. He spends most days tinkering. He works on cars and trucks in his yard. On my first visit, he was in the middle of digging out a swimming pool. Just him and a shovel and a big growing hole. This is the second time I've been here, and I came back because the first time, I felt we just didn't dwell as much as we should have on where this all started for him. That makes sense. Jim's not really a dweller kind of guy. And when I talked to him about the moment in front of the house when he got picked up as a teenager as being life-changing, he doesn't really go there. Because he thinks being in trouble with the cops, that was just his fate. And, you know, who knows what I'd have done then. I mean, when I was a kid, I was bored. I used to go steal stuff just because I was bored. I mean, I, if I got caught for even a small portion of what I stole when I was a kid, I probably had three strikes and been in there for most of my life. A Chevy Blazer is what got him in the most trouble early on. Boosting that one, not his first stolen vehicle, led to Pine Hills Correctional, 
which his mom mentioned earlier. It's basically a prison run by the state for school-aged boys. It keeps them in line and forces them into classes. Now, I had an option when I was in Pine Hills to stay and get to, to stay for another three months, and I could have got my uh, high school graduation from Billings Senior High. But we had a Christmas home on leave, and after that, I was like, no, I want to go home now. Now, if I stayed there for three more months, it would have been past March, and I would have never went to prison for this. Here's the deal. Once the police started looking at Jimmy, they never looked away. And they never looked with any kind of seriousness at anyone else. You know about the sketch already. That was the first red flag for Peter Neufeld. He's the co-founder of the National Innocence Project. You have a composite sketch, and the description that, as I recall, was basically, you know, a five foot eight, five foot ten, or whatever, a young white man uh, with uh, blondish brown hair and acne on his face. Well, you know, you you've now described probably seventy uh, percent of the high school seniors at Billings, Montana. Peter Newfeld founded the Innocence Project with Barry Sheck. You might remember their names as part of the defense team in the O.J. Simpson trial. But the two of them really made their life's work by taking on cases like Jim Bromgaard's, people who weren't famous and might be innocent. Peter started looking at Jimmy's case around the year 2000. And he started by looking at the investigation before Jimmy was arrested. And so he's put in a lineup. You know, I saw the videotape. It, it wasn't a great lineup. It was you know, And we also don't know what suggestive remarks were made to this uh, young girl. Uh, either before or after uh, the videotape uh, was conducted or the lineup was conducted. We don't know all that, and we never will. But putting all that aside, and let's assume for the moment that nothing suggestive was done. She said at that time that she was only 60 to 65% sure that it was Jimmy. What Neufeld is saying is that Linda may have had a visible reaction to Jimmy. She remembers that, and so does her mom. But even then, when she was questioned at that time, and then later on the stand of Jimmy's trial, she says she isn't 100% certain it's him. As a third grader, she's able to put it into a percentage, 60 to 65%. That's how sure she says she is that her attacker is Jimmy Bromgard. All the scientific studies and what we now know with 30 years of research into memory and eyewitness identification is that the most important factor in assessing the reliability of an identification made during an ID procedure, such as a lineup, is the certainty of the eyewitness. And objectively, if that witness says, I'm only 60 to 65% certain, every police department that's working right now would simply reject that identification. It's not good enough. I mean, 60 to 65% is nothing. I mean, think if you want to get an idea of just how bad 60 or 65% is, if you were told that you could get on this airplane and fly uh, from Montana to San Francisco, and there was a 60 to 65% chance that it would land safely, would you get on the plane? Of course not. So Jimmy's history as a kid in trouble with the cops, plus the sketch, then that lineup, an idea of sorts by the victim. He didn't have an alibi. And you heard about the checkbook found on his street. A next door neighbor told police Jimmy for sure looks like that sketch. And furthermore, he probably did it because he's a troublemaker. 
That wasn't surprising to Jimmy. We had a lot of old people in the neighborhood. So anytime like, something was happening, vandalism of any kind or whatever, you know, they always came looking at me and it's like, I didn't do it. Plus, and this is a big plus, there's what happened at the state crime lab after its founder finished his forensic hair analysis. That ends up being the clincher in more ways than one. It all adds up to an arrest for a crime a lot bigger than stealing a car. And no way could Jimmy or his family afford to hire some hotshot New Yorker like Peter Neufeld, or frankly, any lawyer. Well, that is another story. Jim's mom still lives in Billings, and she was talking to Jim's lawyer in 1987. Uh, in fact, his lawyer one time called me, and his his exact words, he's, I believe Jimmy is innocent. He said, but I don't know how to prove it. Do you have any ideas? And I'm not a lawyer, but he was asking me for ideas. John Adams was a well-known attorney in Billings. In the late 80s, he was working for the county, kind of on retainer. He was paid a flat fee of $1,000 a month to represent people who couldn't afford anyone else. The pay stayed the same, regardless of the case or the amount of work it required. I mean, if they appointed me the lawyer, he must know what he's doing. So, you know, I, he knew more about it than I did. So I just, I was just waiting to go home. You know, you, you're taught that, you know, that you're innocent to prove guilty. You're taught that good always wins, blah, 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 all that stuff in your kid. So, you know, you believe that. And it's not really true. <laughs> John Adams died in 2002, not long after Jimmy's release from prison. Before the trial, he met with Jimmy one time. As it got underway, he declined to make an opening statement. Peter Neufeld has some thoughts about that. He didn't give an opening statement. I mean, you know, there are all these studies that indicate that an opening statement by a lawyer is critically important because most juries actually make up their minds based on how they react to the opening statements. So the prosecutor gave an opening statement talking about what a strong case he had against Jimmy, but the defense said nothing. First on the stand was Linda. She was told to look at the jury, but she did sneak a glance or two at the defendant. I remember he had changed. I was surprised because I expected him to look exactly how I remembered him looking, but he was clean shaven and I think had kind of longer hair. According to the trial transcript, she was again asked how sure she was, just like she was after the police lineup. I want to say definitely wasn't 100. Might have even been under 75, maybe 80. I, I can't But it, it I probably didn't sound. You were 60 to okay. 65%, okay. which I was like, how do you get an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old to say that? But Yeah, I don't know if they taught me math while I was meeting with the attorneys. I can't remember. Um, but you knew you weren't 100% sure, and you had told them that. Yes, yeah. Frankly, uh, one of the things that's impressive here is uh, that she was very honest. You know, they couldn't get her to say that she was certain uh, or 100% sure of herself. She told them, I'm only 60 to 65%. This was information that Jimmy's lawyer would have had. Her lack of sureness existed in a police statement before it was trial testimony. And had he brought a motion to suppress the in-court identification, he most likely would have won. And then this little girl would not have been able to make an in-court identification in front of the jury, and the chances of an acquittal would have been that much better. Because, you you know, all you had then was, was Melnikoff's testimony about the hair. The jury met Arnold Melnikoff on the last full day of the trial, the day before their verdict. 
1975, Melnikoff was trained by the FBI to analyze hair from crime scenes. We now associate the words junk science with criminal hair forensics. Looking at hairs under a microscope simply can't narrowly determine whose hair it is or isn't, at least not conclusively, not like DNA can. A few years ago, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers teamed up with the FBI and found that in nearly a fourth of all the DNA exonerations at that time, the prosecution used hair analysis to point to the defendant, the defendant later proven to be innocent. Melnikoff was also the founder of the Montana Crime Lab, and his testimony did more than bring in what we now know as bad science. Melnikoff added bad math. Here's Peter Newfeld. When I looked at the transcript and uh, I saw the testimony of Melnikoff, you know, I was quite flabbergasted because uh, I instantly knew that his testimony that the frequency of the pubic hair match is one in a hundred, the frequency of the head hair match was one in a hundred, and therefore the frequency that both of them would match was a, a multiplication of one in a hundred over one in a hundred to get one in 10,000 was something he simply made up. So Arnold Melnikoff tells the jury that the chances of anyone other than Jimmy Ray Bromgard raping the now nine-year-old victim are one in 10,000. I spoke to Melnikoff a couple of times, but he didn't want to be recorded. In a four-page letter emailed to me by his lawyer, he takes issue with how Peter Neufeld characterized his math. He says he was following principles published in the 80s by the Journal of Forensic Science. He writes, There was nothing in the scientific literature that I was aware of in 1987 that stated you could not multiply hair probabilities. At any rate, Bromgard's lawyer never questioned the numbers or refuted the testimony. In the Court TV documentary from 2006, a juror describes the effect of Melnikoff's testimony. You'll hear his statement, followed by the voice of Linda's dad, Mark Tkarski. I kind of looked around a little bit, and you could see that everybody was just kind of amazed on how they got the hair samples, how they matched. There might have been doubt before, but when Melnikoff left the court, I knew Jimmy Braungard was the man who did it, as much as I could know anything. Melnikoff's testimony is powerful and overwhelming, but Adams doesn't call a single witness to challenge the fight. When the jury came back on day four, Jimmy's lawyer, John Adams, wasn't there at first. Jimmy's mom, Diana, was, however. I was the first one back in the courtroom, and the court clerk was there, and the officer, the uh, security officer was there, and they said, you know, everybody has been called, but nobody can find John Adams. And... Uh, the security officer as well, did anybody think about trying the Empire Bar? And they both laughed. Like it was a joke. You know, it wasn't a joke to me. Post-conviction, Adams never filed an appeal. So Jimmy put in for a new lawyer. As for the founder of the crime lab, he became kind of a project for Peter Newfeld. Newfeld pushed Montana to review all of its cases involving hair analysis and testimony by Arnold Melnikoff. But the attorney general wouldn't agree to that kind of a sweep. So the Innocence Project dug into a few of its own. Through DNA testing, two other Montana men were exonerated of rape charges. 
Chester Bauer, convicted in 1983, and Paul Cordonowy, convicted in 1990. Melnikoff left his job in 1989 and went to work as a forensic scientist with the Washington State Police. He lost that job, largely based on his testimony in Montana, and on Neufeld's continued involvement to derail his career. Melnikoff lost two appeals in Washington and never worked in forensics again. In the letter and a phone call, he makes it clear that he believes Peter Neufeld is a bad actor who went after him personally, when he should instead rail against the science as it existed during Jimmy's trial. As for Jimmy, well, he turned 19 just before entering the prison system as a child rapist. You can maybe guess how that went over. I got several fights in there. You know, and I, I got lucky that I, got, I was in Montana instead of a real state prison. I mean, a real prison, I probably would have got stabbed or killed. This is how it is to talk to Jim about this now. But early days in prison were brutal. I learned from talking to his mom that he was attacked by a guy she describes as the toughest inmate in there. And the guy broke his jaw so bad, put him in the hospital, broke his jaw so bad that if you feel his jaw, it feels like there's a tire chain in there. I mean, a bike chain. And the doctor said, if you ever break your jaw again, there's no way we can fix it. When I go back to Jim's place after talking to his mom in Billings, I ask him about it. He says it happened a few days after he got off Fish Row. That's what they call the month in intake before prisoners enter the general population. Uh, in the intake unit, yeah, we call them Fish Row because the new guys are fish, new fish in a big pond or something like that. So where did this fight happen? Uh, in the high side gym in the bathroom. Was that pretty common that there would be shit going on in there? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I went in there willingly. And, you know, I thought that was going to be tough. Yeah, not very tough. <laughs> not as tough as I thought it was. <laughs> so you knew there was going to be something going on in there. And you went uh, in there. Yeah, I wasn't going to run and hide. So. Guards found him unconscious on the floor in there and got him to a doctor. But I mean, you're shackled and, and shackled and belly chains and all that stuff to, to the hospital and then they put you out, do the surgery, wake up, you're you got shackles on and laying in the bed, and then there's two guards in there with you. It, like, broke like this. It broke in two places, and there's a little chain link that holds the three pieces together there. So that's his introduction to what would end up being the next 14-plus years of his life. He worked out. He got a reputation for breaking rules and also for being pretty good with a tattoo needle. He still tattoos himself regularly and his wife when she lets him. Mostly, though, he says he kept to himself in prison. Talking about that puzzle he was taping up for his son reminds him of another way he passed time in the cell. The hardest one I ever did was 5,000 pieces, and it was all dice. You did a 5,000-piece puzzle? Yeah, it was all dice, all white and black. Just all white with dice with black spots. How long did that take? About a week and a half. That's not long. Didn't, ha- didn't have much to do in prison. <laughs> read books and play cards and put together puzzles. And every time sex offender counseling was, let's say, offered to Jim, he figured out a way to say no thanks. I had to sit in a group that was uh, four sex offenders. And I had to tell them, kiss my butt, I'm not sitting in these groups anymore. I said, nope, those people are fucked up. <laughs> Big guy, I'll just stay myself, see ya. He knew he'd get denied parole for refusing treatment, but it didn't matter. Because for one thing, he knew he wasn't a sex offender. And for another, he didn't figure he'd ever make parole anyway. But it's not like he didn't have hope. One night he caught a TV news show about the Innocence Project. It was either 60 Minutes or 2020, he can't remember. 
and he saw Peter Neufeld for the first time talking about the project. Then he got in touch with his lawyer, who was no longer John Adams. His appeals lawyer was Bill Hooks. Bill's had a long career of being a good lawyer for people who can't afford good lawyers. He eventually became the state's chief public defender. Bill Hooks took Jimmy's case after everyone figured out John Adams dropped the ball. And his first step was to drive all the way to the prison in Deer Lodge to meet Jimmy in person. Well, initially, I thought this is a pretty young kid to be where he is right now. Hypothetically, uh, a number of clients may sit down with their attorney right off the bat and say, I didn't do it, I'm innocent. I, I hear that a lot and I may think, yeah, sure, uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. But uh, sometimes that really rings true. Hooks handled Jimmy's three unsuccessful appeals, pointing out all the problems with how the trial went down. But that didn't work. So some period of years had gone by, and Jimmy and I were remaining in contact. You know, and then we kind of were at a lull. Uh, what do we do? Where do we go? And then at some point, Jimmy contacted me about the Innocence Project and asked if we could pursue that, if there was a way to connect with them. The Innocence Project, even then, was only taking cases that involved biological evidence. There had to be DNA. But no one was really sure that that was true in Jimmy's case in a trial from 87 when the policy was that old evidence could be and most likely would be destroyed. But someone figured out it existed and it was in an unlikely place. Well, I remember getting excited about things but then even wondering if I should get excited because for someone to tell me, you know, oh, we, you know, we think we found a box. That story and more in the next episode. An Absurd Result is a production of Mopac Audio. It's reported and written by me, Jewel Banville. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzeridin and Jonathan Beal. Sound editing by Robert Williams. Music by Nick Bomarito. We had production help from Shannon McGarvey and Chris Moss. Special thanks to Kayla Spaller. For more, visit absurdresultpodcast.com and follow us on social media at Absurd Result Pod. Thanks for listening.